Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Decisive Point welcomes Mr. Henry D. Sikulski author of Underestimated, Our Not-So-Peaceful Nuclear Future, published by the U.S. Army War College Press in 2018. Sokolsky is the executive director of the Nonproliferation Policy Education Center in Washington, D.C. He previously served in the Senate as a nuclear and military legislative aide, in the Pentagon as deputy for nonproliferation policy, and as a full-time consultant on proliferation issues in the Secretary of Defense's Office of Net Assessment. Welcome, Henry. Let's dive right in. In your 2018 book, Underestimated, Our Not-So-Peaceful Nuclear Future, Second Edition, you cover a lot of ground. Please give our listeners a brief overview of the book. The reason I wrote the book was, you know, any serious social scientific field, economics, demographics, political science, they all use what they know about the past to give you a bird's eye view of what they think the future will be. And I noticed that there was really no book that took the matter of nuclear weapons and projected into the future. The military science, if you will, of nuclear proliferation was a blank sheet. I took it upon myself to try to take a look at maybe, you know, half century, a little more than a half century, and ask what trends do we see? And based on those trends, and assuming they continue, where are we going to be? you know, in 10 or 20 years. So I focused on, in detail, four trends. And the trends that I found that were interesting is that the difference between the largest and smallest nuclear weapons arsenal has gotten much, much smaller. It used to be that what we had, which was at one point during the Cuban Missile Crisis, 25,000 nuclear weapons, was easily an order of magnitude more than what the Russians had, which was 2,500. And what they had was, again, another order of magnitude more than the British had, actually two orders of magnitude. So there was like a thousand-fold difference between the largest arsenal and the smallest at the time. Now the difference is about one order of magnitude. Russia and the United States had thousands. The smallest arsenals that we know of now are about 100 or thereabouts. Another trend is that the amount of surplus weapons and civilian materials that could be quickly converted into bombs, that's highly enriched uranium and separated plutonium, they used to be almost zero. Everything that we had and the Russians had went immediately into weapons. There was very little civilian activity in the way of power reactors. And so there wasn't a civilian stockpile or any surplus. Everything went into weapons or naval reactors. Well, that's changed. Now there's tens of thousands of bombs worth of highly enriched uranium separated plutonium, not only in military stockpiles on reserve in the United States, Russia, France, Great Britain, but there's civilian stockpiles of separated plutonium in places like Japan. And you can change or convert this material into weapons reasonably quickly. And you're talking about thousands of weapons worth of this. Well, that's different and that's new. The third trend was the ability to make this stuff. It used to be there was only two places, Russia and the United States, well, three, and Great Britain. Well, now there's lots of places, comparatively, 
that are separating plutonium or enriching uranium. The ability to make a large amount of this stuff reasonably quickly with these machines and plants is totally new compared to a half century or so ago. And then finally, the number of states that have long-range nuclear-capable missiles has changed. It used to be Russia and the United States were the only ones that had them. And now 31 nations have them. And if you take the range yard of these missiles and you just draw them from where they're based, it's very disturbing where they overlap. They overlap in places where there's a history of war or fear and loathing of wars. Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Pakistan, India, and East Asia. Well, that's new as well. So reviewing these trends, I sort of concluded that it was a mistake to celebrate how relatively fewer nuclear weapons there are. And there are a lot fewer. I mean, we got rid of, and the Russians got rid of, at least for deployed weapons. We had up to, together, something like 70,000 weapons. Well, today, that number is several thousand. So there's a big reduction. And a lot of people celebrate that, and they should. And people say, well, okay, there are a few more nuclear states than there were in 1950. They're now nine, but that's not too bad. I think emphasizing those points may be less than a complete thought. And the reason why is this could change far more quickly today than at any time previously. You know, those trends that I mentioned suggest it will only take a few short years for the countries that have nuclear weapons to get a whole lot more and countries that don't have nuclear weapons to get not just a one or two, but, you know, maybe several score of them relatively quickly. Let's add to this. They have a way of delivering these things to trouble spots and getting dragged into wars and trouble spots. And then you can add, you know, there's some trends towards launching on warning. Certainly, we've read about this recently in the case of China. And I think it's been our policy in the U.S. for at least a decade or two or three to probably do that ourselves. There certainly are doctrines for early use of nuclear weapons in places like Russia and Pakistan, possibly North Korea. Now, all of this kind of makes you a little worried, I think, or should. And I thought, well, this is an important message. Now, I don't think any of the worst nuclear use or the spread of nuclear weapons is inevitable. And, you know, I made some recommendations in the book, principally focused on China, which at the time was considered a little edgy. I originally wrote this book about a decade ago. When I finished the book, or at least those two chapters, I wrote a version of it in an article or two. What really stunned me is how little attention my arguments had or got. At the time, going to zero was all the rage. So I decided to do another chapter on what other people thought. And three categories of thinkers. There are arms controllers who oppose nuclear weapons and see their spread as destabilizing. They want the, these things to be eliminated. The next group are the supporters of nuclear weapons. I guess you would call these people hawks. And they see the weapons, at least in current hands, as somehow stabilizing, because deterrent. And they oppose the spread as well, but they say, well, but for friends, maybe it's okay. Then finally, there's academics. This group sees the spread of nuclear weapons to all nations either as stabilizing or inconsequential. The other thing that was odd is that it didn't matter which group you looked at, none of them really said the commonsensical thing that I think anyone would say if they were untutored in, in these matters. And what would they say? Well, fewer weapons and fewer hands is better, but it's really risky. You got to know what everyone's doing. And if you don't, you might not want to get rid of yours. What in the book is held up well? Well, I guess the short answer is a lot. 
quite an extensive discussion in the book about two trends that needed practical policy attention and were focused upon in the recommendations section. One of the trends that I highlight is the spread and the further building of facilities in support of what's called the fast reactors. And these machines are designed to use fast neutrons. It is a terrific machine if you want to make weapons. I noticed that this idea was something that uh, the Chinese were toying with, the Russians have played with a lot. We have put it aside until recently, and it has enormous military implications. You get into this, and the breakout period and the amount of material that you can convert into bombs is going to, on the first instance, be very short, and there'll be a lot of material. Do you really want to go down this route unless it's clearly economic, which it clearly is not? I then focused a little bit on China. If you get the latest copy of China military power from the Pentagon, they do this annually. It cites a Western think tank that did a study pointing out just how many nuclear weapons China could have in about eight years if it exploited its civil nuclear program with regard to fast reactors and the recycling of the material. Well, the numbers were stunning, even under conservative assumptions, and they cited those numbers and took them on and made them official. And the number was at least a thousand nuclear weapons by 2030, which is not that many years from now. That puts China roughly with the United States and Russia as far as the number of deployed strategic warheads possibly. And of course, we've seen recently photographs where they've made 350 silos. We're now worried about this. That projection of that concern in the book from a decade ago turned out to be pretty good. And what's changed since then that deserves mention? In the second edition, I touch upon forms of diplomacy that might make sense. I'm not sure how viable those forms of diplomacy are now, given the bad relations with China and Russia. Maybe that's wrong. I think you're still going to have to have diplomatic positions on the control of strategic weaponry, if only to have a position that you and your allies can unify around and to identify bad behavior that even if the Russians and Chinese don't agree to, they will know that we will take umbrage if they go over certain lines. More important than what may or may not be as sound is what was missing. There was some discussion in that diplomatic section of what would constitute bad behavior in space. Maybe we want to start saying you can't get your satellite very close to our most important military satellites. Maybe we need safety zones, or they sometimes call them keep-out zones or defense zones. I don't think it was a complete thought in the book, though. And what wasn't a complete thought, let me be clear, was that space technology and missile technology that's become very accurate and very plentiful and very widely available in the form of drones, if not ballistic missiles. Those developments, I think, may be really important to thinking about the future of nuclear weapons. Let me explain. In 1915 at Passchendaele, the killer app, the strategic weapon par excellence was chemical weapons. 75 years later, it was so far into the background. We had them, but nobody thought we would use them that much. It was not considered to be the top dog strategic weapon anymore. During the 20s, we imagined that chemical weapons would be dropped by airplanes and decide the war overnight. None of that ultimately was the case. 
You know, similarly, in 1915, battleships were the thing. But certainly after the Second World War, battleships were nothing as compared to aircraft carriers. So what happens is military science changes what's militarily or strategically important as a weapon. And the question is, could that happen with regard to nuclear weapons? I think to some extent it's actually happening. In the case of space, what's happening is the front lines of strategic turn are gravitating away from the surface of the Earth into space. Our eyes, ears, voices, and our nervous system for both our civil and military systems on the ground are all based in space. If we lose access to those things, or those things are disabled, it doesn't matter what our military strength on the ground is, nuclear or non-nuclear. And so I think the opening rounds of combat in the future may very well be in space. Now, you could say that's kind of good news because, first, we have an advantage there that I think we can exploit. But in addition, you're not killing people. The model for nuclear weapons, after all, came from the air war series of the 1920s. And that was, if you could bomb away the military capital, the industrial capital, and, and maybe literally the capital, political capital of the country, if you could do that quickly with bombers, you would win. And if you could threaten to do that credibly, you could get your way without fighting. Well, we're moving towards new forms of warfare where you can disable a nation without doing that level of decimation. We're seeing this a little bit in the Ukraine war, although the Russians are behaving as though it's the medieval period and they were in siege tactics. But the Ukrainians are taking out individual generals with drones. They're taking out tanks and armor with individual drones, which are highly precise. And they're using intelligence to maintain control of the narrative of the war. It is far less destructive a war if we're moving in that direction, precision and space-based advanced systems and control of space become terribly important in a way that might make nuclear weapons about as relevant as the top weapon as chemical weapons became after the Second World War, which is to say a lot less. Now, that's a pretty optimistic view, but I think it has to be articulated, and I don't think it was in the book. You've written several things on new generation warfare and precision strike. How might they alter the key points yeah. of your book? One article was Dr. Strangelove's New Passion, Precision Guided Mayhem, which talks about the revolution in, in precision guidance and how our original theories about it may have been a little off. The second was something called are we ready for the next convulsion? I don't think the book did justice to any of those things because I don't think I had those thoughts. It's incredible how quickly things evolve. The Russians were writing about new generation warfare for some time. What's odd is that we thought they were masters of disinforming, spooking folks, using precision-guided munitions to take out certain nodes, and that they would show this in the war against Ukraine. Well, that didn't happen. But they had been writing about that for some time. I was not familiar with that literature. And I think, to be honest, it was a little confusing when I did read it. And so it was easy not to understand it. But I think maybe we didn't pay enough attention to it ourselves. And now we are. The clock's run out on us, I'm afraid. This was a pleasure. Thank you, Henry. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcast Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.